Patrick Lester, and I'm delighted to say that Malcolm Love isn't here. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not delighted oh, to say gosh. that. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Hannah Bestwick. Hey, yeah, that's me. Yeah, no, we're very sad to be missing Malcolm today. Yeah. Well, I think I believe he's in the air somewhere. Probably flying somewhere. He's always flying somewhere. Yeah. Lovely and warm. Jet setting. Yeah. Um, I've not been here for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, there's something that happened while I wasn't here, and I think if I'd been here, I'd have been getting very excited about it, which was, of course, that SpaceX launched the Falcon Heavy rocket, and it was awesome. <laughs> it was so awesome. I mean, there was, there's so much to be said about it, but that... Like, I know it was a while ago now, it was a couple of weeks ago, but I yeah, wasn't... I mean, to me, that still feels quite recent. Yeah. Have there been a lot of other things since then that make it feel like a long time ago uh, to you? I just feel like people should th- th- probably think we should start the show with something a bit more newsworthy in, t- in the science world, but... I, I think know. it's still up for discussion, okay. I feel like. It's not out of the public eye yet. Right, so I watched it, yes. uh, projected onto the wall of my shed, because that's, that's the way I do things. <laughs> the way and, you roll. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, the, the, the moment where the two booster rockets landed back down on the landing pad. I mean, just awesome. I mean, even if you don't know anything about how difficult that is, it looks... It looks really, really cool. If you know how difficult it is, it's insanely awesome. I mean, just brilliant. All those... You know, have you ever seen the film October Sky? I have not, sorry. Okay. So this film, October Sky, is a true story, uh, based on a true story about Homer Hickam, who was uh, somebody who lived in a mining town mm-hmm. and uh, watched the Sputnik go overhead and then decided to become a rocket scientist. And the film is basically him uh, blowing up rockets on his way to eventually working for NASA. Cool. And I feel like we've been watching that for real, with SpaceX blowing up all these rockets on the launch pad. You know, it's been amazing watching them, like, oh, it's an amazing rocket, it's going to blow up. And, and now... All of a sudden, they're launching this awesome, awesome thing into space. And what did they take into space? Well, it's, yeah, okay. <laughs> there's, a, there's a side note. There's mm-hmm. a side note, which is that they have launched uh, the Tesla, the uh, Elon Musk's red roadster Tesla into space. Now, I, I'm going to be honest at the start, because we need mm. to talk about whether this is a good thing or not. Yeah, I think so. Okay. And I'm going to be honest, <laughs> when I watched it... Yeah. I just loved it, okay? I've had thoughts since, but it was just... I mean, it looks brilliant. I watched it with my daughter. She loved the fact that there was the car that she sees in Cribs. Oh, yeah. (laughs) One of those being launched in space. And it's an electric car. That's exciting because, you know, electric cars are are, are quite an exciting prospect. Um, And it's got, you know, it's got Don't Panic on the dashboard. It's got um, David Bowie playing. Yeah. And... It looks, the photograph of it with the space... Uh, with the it's got a mannequin in it, hasn't it? It's got a mannequin in one of SpaceX's space suits, which look awesome. And there's photographs <laughs> of it. You know, you can actually watch a live video stream yeah. of it in space with the what? Earth in the background. A live stream? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Constant, no matter what time, you just, well, you just go yeah, on you and can. it's there. Yeah, at some point, it'll disappear. Oh, okay. It may well have disappeared. I haven't watched it oh. for a few days, let's okay. be honest with you. But it looks awesome. It looks absolutely amazing. But what we're actually talking about is an incredibly rich man launching a sports car. A very expensive sports car into space. For a bit of a joke, kind is it, of. Is it? Is that what it is? Well, on, that's what it feels what like. I don't know. I... I think that's just another piece of space junk that's been put up there because it's not. There, no, there aren't any plans to get rid of it or to crash it into anything. It's just, it's just floating around 
for however long it's going to stay there, which estimates put at about 3.5 million years, perhaps, that it's just going to keep floating around. And it's, it seems like a gimmick. It seems like a gimmick to me. Okay, I think it is a gimmick. Okay. But um, the thing is that if they were going to launch that rocket, they would have had to have had something in it as a test payload. Yeah. And ordinarily, that would be a lump of concrete. So in that circumstance, a lump of concrete would have been floating around. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. all it is is replacing the lump of concrete with something a bit more exciting, a bit more interesting. Okay, okay, I can sort of see that. Maybe I just don't like fun, okay? (laughs) Maybe I don't like it when cool, fun things happen. Yeah, well, you know, there's an argument. I I, I see an argument that it could have been something else. Yeah. It could have been science. But the other side of that is there's an awful lot of science Mm. that gets launched, and it doesn't get spoken about as much. You know, science being launched to the International Space Station, I'll talk about it on this radio show, Um, but it doesn't make the news as the the main item on the news, on the BBC News, on Sky News, on everything, Mm. when you launch some science into space. But if you launch a car into space, space, everybody starts talking about it. And I can kind of see why, as a one-off, I like it. Mm. There's some issues with it, obviously. I mean... When it's the idea is for I think there's been some misinformation or misunderstandings, people thinking that it was going to go to Mars. It wasn't going to ever going to go to Mars. In fact they don't really want it to go to no. Mars, do they? No. Because it might it might contaminate Mars with Earth bacteria yeah. and just hinder future efforts to find Martian uh native cultures yeah. bacteria <laughs> yeah, native yeah. life is that life what i mean Mars. indigenous yes something like i think that. so microbes and things like that yeah bacteria, the likes yeah um yeah absolutely it could be that w- particularly when we then go to mars to look for signs of microbial life yes you would just you could just say well that got there because of the car yeah absolutely. the car put it here um but they've been looking at so there's um analysis by czech and canadian researchers has mm. looked at the path that this the car is taking through space and looked at where it might end up mm-hmm. after its millions of years and there's a six percent chance of it colliding back with earth now colliding is a bit of a mis- misleading yeah. word there because it will burn up in the atmosphere none of it would actually get down but it could there. try it could try and it would look awesome mm-hmm. but uh we probably won't be around to see it so it'll be millions of years yeah. the other thing that the, the researchers say actually is if it does collide with Earth, there's also a what is it? It's a 2.5% chance that it might hit Venus. Mm. But even if it collided with Mars and Mars or Europa or one of these places that we're going to in the future go and look for signs of life, it would be in space for so many millions of years, it would effectively be um, sterilised by, by the, uh, the, the radiation and everything that's going to hit it. Mm. Although I think the tardigrades might have something to say they about They will that. have a lot to say about that. They can yeah. withstand immense amounts of radiation, vacuums and cold and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, wasn't... Okay. Because I read this as well. They ran, the, they ran a computer simulation 240 times to get these numbers. See, how, how likely is it that it would hit Earth and things like that. But... Didn't they also say that it it will pass Earth in about 30 years? Yes. So would we be able to see that? I think it's very difficult to say that we would be able to see it with our eyes. It will pass between, or could very possibly pass between us and the moon. 
So if you were kind of in the right spot and you had the right telescope, you might. But it's so much smaller than, say, for example, if you see a picture of the International Space Station, which is much closer to us and much bigger, if you see that silhouetted against the moon, which there are pictures of that available, and then imagine a car which is so much smaller than the International Space Station. It would just be a dot. It would be a dot. So you'd have to, you wouldn't be able to have like the whole moon in the picture in the car, but if you had a strong enough telescope, you might be able to get a close-up of the car just looking like yeah. it's going in front of a grey screen. Well, I, I just maybe? don't think... I mean, even maybe, maybe if Hubble looked at it, you might get something, <laughs> but I just don't think... We're, oh, the James Webb Space Telescope's going to be up there by then. Hey. There's an argument that we wouldn't waste time of that uh, telescope time oh. looking at a car with that. But uh, you can't... I mean, people are picking it up now with radar and things and being able to, to pick it up. I, I think there's a lot to be said for it. Yeah. Um, I think it could have been something else. Say, for example, a mirror ball that was going to reflect light back Yeah, I didn't didn't like that either, did I? No, you didn't. So you just just always calling me out, <laughs> calling me unreasonable, saying I don't like fun. I think you said that. Did I? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm you sorry. definitely did. Oh, I'm sorry if I did. If I did say that. I didn't mean it. But I, I think I I don't know what I think about it, and I I, I, I put myself in the situation of being the person who decides what goes goes into space. I'm not yeah. that person. I never will be that person. But it's two people came to me and one said, "I want to launch my old cherry red." Tesla into mm. space and one of them said I want to launch something into space which will make people look up and consider their place in the universe and it will come back to earth in nine months and burn up in the atmosphere I'd probably go for that one <laughs> okay I think we'll probably have to agree to disagree there okay well maybe we will um, we're going to talk next mm-hmm. about that earthquake that probably quite a lot of listeners felt here in Bristol last week. Very strange happenings in Bristol last week when the ground started to move beneath our feet. Yeah, apparently. Did you feel it? No, I was I wasn't here. I was in Hertfordshire that like on the day that it happened. But I saw a bunch of my friends posting things on Facebook being like, did did anybody else feel that? Yeah. Did you? I didn't. I was in Manchester, wasn't I? I mean, I think some people did feel it for that far north, actually. But I was in a car that oh. was moving around. Um, I had some friends, again, my phone lit up with people saying, oh, it's a nice place, and various <laughs> social media and things. And, uh, and I thought, oh, I'm really disappointed to have missed that one. Yeah, it would have been interesting. Yeah. I, I, a friend of mine, uh, Maddie, who's been on the show before, she was, uh, she was in, in Bristol and she said, uh, I said, did you feel it? And she said, uh, no, I was riding across cobbles at the time (laughs) (laughs) you know you're not going to feel it but I I did this morning go and speak to someone at the University of Bristol who Mm. knows about the way that the earth works and why we might have heard that and this is that conversation so my name is Nikki Young I am a PhD student at University of Bristol and I study uh, geophysics and volcanoes okay so we didn't have a volcano in Bristol this no week, but we did no. have an earthquake yes did you feel it I didn't and I was absolutely gutted not to have felt it I was out and about walking and I think it was much easier to feel if you were indoors and not moving yeah but did you notice other people feeling it around you? No, no, I knew nothing about it until um, one of my WhatsApp threads blew up with people saying, oh my gosh, an earthquake, particularly, um, so I'm a senior resident, so I work um, in halls, uh, doing pastoral support of students, 
and so this is the channel on WhatsApp. And one of the other senior residents is from Mexico, and she said she was on the phone talking to a friend and felt it and thought, no, it can't be an earthquake. There aren't earthquakes in the UK. Um, but being accustomed to them, said if she had thought it was an earthquake, she would have ran out of the building. <laughs> Bless her. So, um, and then she later found out, yeah, yes, it was. Yeah. Do you know what caused this earthquake in Bristol? Uh, I don't know for definite, but from chats with uh, seismologists in the department and from looking at the data, uh, we know it was a strike-slip earthquake, which means that something moving laterally against something else. So if you think about the San Andreas Fault, um, that's an example of um, strike-slip region. So you get, the, you get things moving sideways against each other. And so it was admittedly a, a very, very small one. The direction of it makes us suspect that it was probably due to the collision of the Eurasian, the Eurasian plate with the African plate. So Africa is pushing upwards against the Eurasian plate and that causes, can cause small movements on faults in the UK, okay. which is probably responsible for this earthquake. Okay, so there are fault lines in the UK. Yes. Historically, the UK has been incredibly active. We're actually made up of slivers of lots of old land masses. We didn't, the UK wasn't always like this. And it's been sutured together, particularly in um, Scotland. So there are lots of very, very old structural lineaments, but those don't seem to be moving anymore. The centre was near Swansea. Yes. The location of earthquakes in the UK, it's not quite clear why they form the pattern they do, as far as I'm aware. So uh, if you look at the BGS, they have really great material on earthquakes in the UK, and you can look at the distribution map, and you see that they're kind of gathered on the eastern side, particularly um, in Scotland, and they're kind of clustered um, in Wales into the southwest, south, yeah, southwest of England, and there's not so many in the east. In Scotland, the theory is it's because of post-glacial rebounds, so there used to be lots of heavy ice and glaciers, and those were removed, and so the Earth is still recovering from that and still bouncing back, and so that obviously is causing faults to move, and so we have these earthquakes. Why it's gathered in, in Wales uh, is slightly harder to say, and because I'm not an expert seismologist, I don't really know. Yeah, but it is interesting. Is it going to happen again? Oh, well, I mean, uh, if, again, if you go on the BGS website, you can see the records of earthquakes. There was a further three or four afterwards, but they were much, much smaller. So they were either aftershocks or they could just be um, transfer of stress onto other faults that just that may have been close to moving and then did move because the stress was moved from where the earthquake happened. So probably not that size. So I think the recurrence interval for a magnitude 4 earthquake is about every, I think it's every two or three years. Are we likely then to see at some point a, another earthquake from that same fault in Swansea? Oh, goodness knows. I mean, there, I think there's a fairly high density of faults um, in Wales. And I, don't, I don't imagine it would be the same the exact same fault because I mean it's impossible to tell which fault it was because um, BGS says it was seven kilometers depth but it's very hard to say how exact that is exactly which fault activated so it would be impossible to tell if it was the same one. I think generally what happens is that you build up stress on a fault and once it's released it takes some time for enough stress to build up again for it to slip so generally what happens is the stress is transferred to different faults, and those ones are probably more likely to move. I mean, you can look 
there has been studies done in, I want to say, Chile, where they look at so-called seismic gaps. So they look at where earthquakes have happened and where they haven't. And very generally, if you have a big gap in seismicity where there hasn't been a big earthquake for a while on a major fault line, then you might suspect that that's where the next place is going to be. Is this the largest one we've had in Bristol, do you know? I'm not sure about the largest one we've felt in Bristol, but I know in terms of the largest earthquake, we've definitely had something around a five that was on land. And I think the largest one we've had... This is historical, so they've had to guess what the magnitude was, but they guessed it was around a six, and that was offshore. I think it was in the North Sea. Um, So we we don't tend to get big ones. And, I mean, to put it in context, so the one we felt on on Saturday was uh, 4.2. And if we think about the the Boxing Day earthquake, which was a 9.1. In terms of the energy difference... I think the Boxing Day one was about three million times more powerful. Wow. Okay. But your, so your friend who um, said that if she'd known it was an earthquake, she'd have run out of the house. We don't really need to run out of the house. No. No, not really, because we did, the earthquakes we feel just aren't powerful enough. Uh, I was reading up on it this morning just out of curiosity to see what damage we have experienced. And I think what's happened is chimneys have fallen down. In which case, you're better off inside the house. <laughs> well, I'm, I don't want to give any advice on where people should be, just in case it come back, comes back to bite me. But yeah, generally, I think generally we're we're pretty safe. I think uh, yeah, a man injured his hip because a chimney collapsed near him. That's okay. that's what I read. Okay. As, as far as as far as safety goes, I think. Generally, the UK is quite safe with regards to earthquakes. Okay. And volcanoes, which is what your research is actually mm. on. So what, tell me about your research. What are you looking at? I'm looking at a couple of different volcanoes and a couple of different topics, actually. So the, I'll leave out the more boring one and focus on something that's a bit more interesting. So I've done a gravity survey at Campi for Grey. So Campi for Grey is, um, in fact, it's a super volcano in Italy, near Naples. Most people don't really know it exists because it's not really done anything terribly recently. But it has about near half a million people living in the vicinity, so a lot of people with very high population density in it. And in the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, there was three and a half metres of uplift. And, I mean, that's that's... Yeah. That's pretty big and yeah. no eruption. Uh-huh. So since then, people have been really actively um, studying it and trying to understand what's going on. And it's a difficult story because it's not just a case of there being magma somewhere beneath the surface. It actually has a very active hydrothermal system. And so a hydrothermal system refers to um, hot fluids circulating near the surface. And so you get fumaroles, you get mud pools, you get geysers, that kind of stuff related to it. So Iceland is an example, and so is Yellowstone. The hydrothermal system can produce earthquakes, and it can produce signals and deformation and uplift and things that most people would think, oh, it's, it's magma. So understanding what signals are caused by the hydrothermal system and what's caused by magma is incredibly important. So I did a gravity survey. Gravity measures density. So if you take a measurement somewhere where everything's totally normal, you'd get a certain gravity measurement. And then if you went and took a measurement above a a big cave system, for example, you're missing mass. So that means you would get a lower gravity measurement. And then a different scenario as well, if you looked at... If you're above a giant lead body, then you get a high gravity measurement. So in this way, you can use 
uh, gravity to take measurements and look for where we have different fluids as opposed to solid rock. Mm. Or if you have um, lots of water, if you have lots of gas, you can use that in the context of other information to try and understand what is beneath you. Mm. So my survey was looking for um, where you have, what I found is where there are gas accumulations beneath the surface. Um, and I'm still working on writing up that data. But, okay. it's, but it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, so. no, absolutely. Well, I'd like, so I'm, I'm fascinated by space. Right? Yeah. And um, this gravity question. It, we talk about zero G in space, that's rare. Yeah. Okay, it's rare, there's actually zero yeah. G. And, and on Earth, it's one G. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're telling me it's not 1G all over Earth. It's... No, no, it's not. That's a, it's, a, it's a huge simplification because uh, if, if the Earth was a perfect sphere and made entirely of all the same material throughout, uh, then yes, it would. With, with some caveats. <laughs> but it's not. The Earth is a, um, a kind of slightly flattened spheroid, so it's a bit flatter in the middle than it is at the top. And so that means you get contrasting gravity measurements depending on where you are latitude-wise. Um, you also, because you have mountains and, and valleys, that means uh, you have contrasting de- measurements depending on how high you are, because um, the effect of gravity lessens as you get fur- further away from the sea level. And also depending on what density of material there is, so that also affects your gravity measurements. So you have to do all these careful corrections to actually bring yourself to this perfect scenario of being on this totally homogeneous spheroid. Hmm. What is the difference between these? Is, is it one point one? Is it one point zero 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 one? What's the difference? Oh gosh, uh, the difference would be in acceleration. So the, the normal measurement is nine point eight one meters per second squared. I can't, I'm afraid I can't translate it into something meaningful, but it's, no, right. it's not huge. You'd never ever be able to feel it or tell. It's only these incredibly sensitive instruments. It's literally it's um, a silicon spring with a weight on it, and because of the slightly greater and lesser pull, the spring either is pulled or released slightly. So in these teeny, um, tiny movements are measured as a voltage. Like this is, this is the way we detect it. It's not, it's not a big thing at all. Okay. That's Nikki Young from the University of Bristol talking to me about the earthquake and of course the volcanoes. Now uh, that question at the end, like any good scientist, uh, Nikki couldn't let it lie. And just moments after I left her, I was just leaving the building and I got a text from her to tell me that, in fact, the difference is not point naught 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 five g There we go. How, how many noughts is that? Um, I couldn't count them in okay, my head. I'll count them. That's, it. That's one, two, three, four, five. Okay. After the initial one, after the point. Recently, I spoke to Michaela Musilova. Now, Michaela is a space scientist. She's an astrobiologist who's become a an engineer of sorts. She launches small satellites and rockets into space in Slovakia. She used to be based at the University of Bristol. But right now, she's in an analogue of Mars. She is simulating a, a mission to Mars for NASA right now. And I caught up with her recently and just before she went in. In the afternoon of Thursday the 15th of February, 
we're officially going to enter uh, the Martian habitat or this dome we have here in Hawaii. It's about two and a half thousand meters high up on the side of a volcano, Mauna Loa. And the habitat uh, is in the shape of a dome. It's only 11 meters across in diameter, so very small in terms of surface area where we have to spend uh, eight months. And basically, yeah, we're simulating actually being on the surface of Mars. So in a, say, two-year uh, round-trip mission to Mars in the future, we're simulating the part where the astronauts actually land on the surface of Mars, live in a certain habitat there for that period of time, uh, do research outside where you wear simulated spacesuits and you go on so-called EVAs, extravehicular activities, and the rest of the time you're basically living inside this dome uh, with that, uh, basically with just the supplies you need for the entire mission. So you go there with a certain amount of food, water, your electricity supplied through solar uh, panels there, like, like you would have on Mars. Of course, uh, now we're developing other technologies for Mars, but we're simulating what we have at the moment. Um, and we're going to be living lives like astronauts, where basically mission control from Earth is going to be dictating what we need to do every day from what time we wake up, eat, exercise, to do all our different types of work. We have to do research uh, until what time we go to bed. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a very difficult lifestyle we'll have there. You know, we'll be completely disconnected from Earth in many ways in the sense that, for example, we'll only have access to this special kind of email um, from which we can email people on Earth, but it'll be delayed by 20 minutes each way. So, for example, even if there's a crisis situation, it will take at least 40 minutes to get an answer back from Earth uh, to help us deal with the situation. That's it. And then no, obviously, no live video streams, nothing like that. Yeah. Um, so that, of course, has impact on our personal lives as well. Uh, some people on the crew, uh, you know, have girlfriends, boyfriends, they're leaving behind and that's their only way they're going to be able to communicate uh, during eight months and um, actually what's interesting about our crew so we're uh, the first crew of only four people okay. to go on such a long duration mission and we're a fully international crew so even though this uh, simulation uh, is funded and in a way uh, let's say requested by NASA uh, no one on the crew is American, okay. <laughs> and so that that's a pretty interesting. And I'm actually looking forward to it because we've been now here in Hawaii for the past uh, almost week. Actually, I arrived almost uh, six days ago now, and it's a kind of training pre-mission uh, time for us to uh, get to know all the different research tasks we'll have to do during the mission, prepare for them get some basic training, for example, in geology. The last two days we've been in a national park in Hawaii, kind of exploring the volcanic terrain and the features we will come across in our simulated mission on Mars, so things that are similar to what you would find on Mars today. So it will help us identify uh, the different features, the different rock samples we'll need to collect for the researchers back on Earth, put it that way. Uh, and it's actually been a great bonding experience. Uh, we, I think we have a great crew, and hopefully, it will be all will go well. But after all, it is eight months of just seeing three other people <laughs> all day, every day. Yeah. <laughs> no escape, even if there's conflict. You know, you're stuck inside this dome, and the only time you got is on an EVA. 
And even then, that's, you know, monitored the whole time. You basically have walkie-talkies or equivalent. <laughs> yeah, no, no, quietly uh, cursing your, your crewmates on, on an EVA. You've done something like this before, but it wasn't for this amount of time, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. I did two simulated missions before, and they were at the Mars Desert Research Station, and it's a program run by the Mars Society, so a different organization than... Here it's basically NASA funded, NASA requested in many ways, um, but it's run in collaboration with the University of Hawaii, who are basically based here where uh, the whole simulation takes place. Uh, whereas, yeah, the other missions, they were uh, only a few weeks in length. Uh, the first one, I was also the, the chief scientist of the mission, and the, uh, the next one, which was actually a year ago, uh, I was commander of the mission, and those were the, the crucial difference. There is the length, and that's because the those short-term missions are more focused on the science and technology that they're testing during those missions. So, science and technology uh, projects, which are relevant to getting people to Mars or to actual, you know, living on Mars. So, it was everything from, for example, during the first mission we had. Uh, some experiments from NASA focused on in-situ resource utilization, which um, the idea there is that, you know, instead of taking absolutely everything to Mars, you know, we could try and use some of the local resources. For example, this project was focused on uh, trying to suck up moisture or water from the Martian soil, uh, and then you would have a supply, another supply of water instead of just what you bring with you, and that water could be also broken down to make oxygen and maybe use the, the hydrogen for some form of fuel. So we were testing those sort of things. Or, for example, during the mission last year, we it was also kind of a, an in-situ research utilization project. Uh, this time we were looking at the Martian soil and whether we could make bricks out of it so that could potentially build some kind of habitat on Mars using, again, the local resources, the soil there, instead of bringing construction material with us. And, um, or, you know, my projects tend to revolve around planetary science things. So, for example, looking at life in extreme environments in those kind of simulated Martian-like environments and to see if something similar like that could potentially exist on Mars today or, or in the past. So while they were also studying us from a psychological aspect, we also had to fill in surveys and there was also a selection process to get in. The psychological part was not the most important thing. It was actually everyone had a bunch of their own research projects they were doing during the mission, and the psychology was just something going on in parallel. Whereas in for this mission, the psychological aspect of the long-duration mission is the most important thing. Yeah. And the research we do during the mission is great, but it's, it's a bonus, basically. Michaela Musilova about to go into the analogue version of Mars. Well, when I spoke to her, she was, she's now in there. And if you want to hear more from Michaela, she will be sending weekly updates to my podcast, The Cosmic Shed, which you can get on thecosmicshed.com. What an amazing experiment that is and what an amazing experience. I have to say, by the way, we've been joined by a man who always makes the Earth move. It's John Ford. 
My wife says that. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, John? All right, thank you. Yeah, good, good to good. see you again. Yeah, good and you. I'm, I've been away for a couple of weeks. Sorry about yeah. that. I've missed you. I've no, missed you. That's right. No, I don't think anyone missed you. Though. <laughs> no, I can't. I'm imagine. just getting my own. I'm getting Malcolm's own back on yeah. behalf of him from what you said at the beginning of the show. I know. I'm sorry. I just, I just, it just came out. I didn't mean it for a second. Yeah, well, yeah. Now, John. Yes. If you were given the opportunity to go to Mars, would you take it? Um. Uh. Yes and no. Um, yes, because it would be unique. Uh, no, because I've got too much stuff here. Mm. Too much baggage, if mm. you want to call it that, which is, I shouldn't call my family baggage, but, <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, you, you know, I've got my children, my extended family as well. If I, if I was a loner and didn't have anyone, um, probably, yeah. Mm. yeah. I think it's only Why a matter not? of yeah. time. And um, Hannah, are you, would, you, uh, would you go? Um, I, there's, there's, there's reasons that I wouldn't want to. I think that um, maybe it's really hard to explain. If I could just be there or be in the spaceship for a short period of time, I think I would be okay with it. It's just the amount of time it would take to get to Mars is yeah. a long time for me to feel anxious about something going wrong with the spaceship. Okay. And that is something that I would worry about okay. the you'd, whole time. You'd worry about the spaceship? Yes. Okay. And any equipment that was involved with sustaining self on Mars. When you get there, yeah. there's nothing there, is there? I mean, you, you'd want a decent place to have a shower when you got there. Exactly. You know, you know all that. You yeah. need all of that. There's nothing there. Well, um, I would hope that any Mars mission would have sent the habitats ahead and there'd have been sort of collapsible, you know... Right. You'd need like greenhouses. You know, they could pop up tents. Pop you can up do tents. That <laughs> the ones they have at festivals. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. You could have a festival yeah. on Mars, couldn't you? The Mars I guess festival, so. I'd, yeah. I'd go to space in other circumstances. I'd go yeah. to, to the moon or to the space station. It's just just such a long journey. Yeah. I like think. Ma- Ma- Michaela's mission is what she was saying there about a, tw- a two-hour mission, two-hour, two-year <laughs> mission to Mars. You'd spend about eight months on the surface. That seems. I, I think it's hopeful that, to think you'd come back. I it's think a bit Mars like the traffic mm. in Bristol, isn't it? I mean, you spend <laughs> two hours getting into town, you're yeah. shopping for half an hour, two hours getting home. Yeah, sometimes. so it's, it's true. Yeah, yeah. I suppose Relatively it is. Although same. there are more shops in Bristol than there are on Mars. That's true. Mars suddenly seems more attractive. Now. <laughs> uh, would you? Would you go to space? Me? Yeah. Would go you go to, to Mars? I mean, would I go to Mars? I, I think I'm similar to John. I'm I'm of the opinion that there's there's too much here for me on Earth. There's quite a lot of I'd like to get away from mm-hmm. and get to Mars to get away from it. But um, I'd, I'd love to stand on the surface of Mars and mm. look up. But then you know. The Curiosity rover sends us these incredible images, incredible videos, actually, of... of, of, Is Mars older than the Earth, or is it the other way around? In other words, did life exist on Mars and then perhaps migrated to Earth billions of years ago, or is it the other way around? Are we, are we going to go, or do we not know that? No, that's one of the great questions. That's why yeah. we would want to go to Mars, to yeah. find that kind of thing. I think, you know, if we're going to talk about human exploration to Mars, and that's what exactly what this mission that Michaela's doing is, is pi- pi- a stepping stone towards people actually setting foot on Mars. And the amount we can do with robotic missions is amazing. We landed a robotic mission on a comet you know I, the Rosetta oh, yeah. that was just I, I think sometimes I forget how awesome that was but it was incredibly awesome we can do that the Curiosity rover is amazing they're talking about a mission where we would have a, an astronaut in orbit around Mars controlling a rover uh, on the surface using remote control that's something that Tim Peake tried out 
on the International Space Station controlling a rover on the surface of Earth. That's the thing that's going to happen before we walk on Mars. But to, to really get to the bottom of these questions, we, I think we need people standing on the surface to go, well, that's an interesting rock. Let's have a look under that one. <laughs> but two years to get there, um, eight months being there and two years to get back, so you know, knocking on for five years. Mm. It's not, that's all right. It's doable. It's doable. You'd miss out on a lot, though. Well, but then, ideas, I guess, yeah. you're um, doing all the exciting, fun science while you're there. And what would you do on the way? Chess. Ch- yeah, yeah. <laughs> exercise, obviously. Do you, do you sleep? You, have, well, you, you have do to, sleep. Yeah. You, have you have to, to do sleep eight hours a day, wouldn't you? Yeah, all of that, and exercise absolutely. and work and uh, yeah. busy yourself, keep your brain going. Yeah. Um, and when you get there, you've got all the work, your science and, and what have you to do, and rock collecting, um, and then two years to come back. Analyse the data you've got, I suppose, um, yeah, I, I, mean, I, 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 I think it's really, 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 really far in the future that we're going to be sending things to Mars and bringing them back again. Mm. I think that before we do that, we'll send something there or someone there who's and, going to stay there. And is it natural to want to go to another planet? I mean, we, we live on this planet. We were born on this planet. We've evolved on this planet. Why, why do we want to go to another one? Um, I, th- I think that, uh, well, as Carl Sagan said... Um, we have started to wade out into the ocean of space. The waters seem inviting, inviting, but so far we're only ankle deep. I, I think we should dive in. I think it's just the way we are explorers. We've always been explorers. We are uh, from. We started as a species in in the continent that's now known as Africa, and have spread out across the world because we're explorers. We've set foot on the moon. Yeah. Why wouldn't we go? on the next step to Mars. Yeah, no, I, I suppose you're right. It's the, the next place along. I mean, if it wasn't Mars, where would it be? Um, I, I'd like to say, I think this is a, a long stretch, but I'd like to see us standing on the surface of one of the icy moons, sort of Europa or Enceladus or something like that. Here's a question for you, um, as a scientist. Um, we, we're, you know, we're infatuated with Mars. You know, we've been to the moon, sure, there's nothing there. Um, we want to go to Mars to find out what's on Mars. And I asked you the question earlier, did Mars come before Earth or the other way around in terms of supporting life? We don't know that, the answer to that question, which is why we want to go to Mars. Yeah. Yet, the scientists find that in a galaxy far, far away, there is you know, a couple of planets that are capable of supporting us as human beings. They're Earth-like planets. Yeah. How do we know that if we don't even know anything about Mars? Ah, well, we don't exactly know that. What we know is that there is the potential for water on those planets. We don't know. We haven't found a planet that we know for sure could sustain life. If you look at the uh, the Trappist planets, there was a paper out uh, last week, in fact, about those Trappist planets. We've talked about them on the show before. These seven planets, all tidally locked uh, in orbit around a star uh, called Trappist-1. And it it looks from the analysis of the data that we're getting, so it's spectral analysis. The the light that comes from the hmm. from the uh, star gets refracted by the planets on its way to us, and we can see from the spectral analysis what those planets are made up of. It looks incredibly likely that possibly all seven of those planets are sloshing around with water. And we know from our sample size of one here on Earth that we need water for life. Sure. And you're listening to Love and Science on BCFM. I'm Andrew, and I've got Hannah and John in the studio with me. Now, I'm looking at a story. Americans would welcome alien life rather than fear it. 
Does this mean they build bridges rather than walls and let them in? <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Uh, there's been a study at the uh, Arizona State University where they had about 500 volunteers and asked them to state whether or not... Uh, talk about aliens, basically. They asked them once if they uh, to read an article about microbial life and once about an artificial cell um, and had them sort of offer their... Dis- describe it, give an opinion on it. Um, and then analysed what they said. So looking for positive language indicators and um, such as good, nice and scared, worried versus risk and reward. So um, benefit, science and um, war, let's say, as a, as a risk indicator. And they found that generally people reacted quite positively to this um, with general feelings of, oh, it might benefit science, things like that. But I, I do think that it's, it's, a really, it's really tenuous because you're asking people to, to comment on things ra- uh, th- hypothetically, you haven't actually told them that you found something that has alien life on it and said, what do you think about that? One of the articles in a slightly different study was on the 1996 discovery of a Martian fossil of microbes. And one of the reasons they said that's not a very good indicator is because that's happened over 20 years ago. Oh, and on your mind. Yeah. They know that nothing bad has happened okay. because it was so long ago. Let's come back to that next time on Love and Science. John Ford follows the news.